pretty well there's lots more we have to say about a lot of things um building a good portfolio is really important and building a portfolio of asset classes that are not particularly well correlated historically is important but that is far more of an art than a science there's a science basis to it in other words first you have to use asset classes you can't just use random stuff like alternatives i guess one of the most important things i wanted to say about that alternatives are dangerous they're very dangerous so if somebody says i want to put alts in your portfolio because it it reduces your the variance or reduces the risk of your portfolio wrong that is i'm just going to say it it's universally wrong why alternative investments by definition do not have a liquid market means you don't know what they're worth until you go to sell them. That's kind of why they're called alternatives, because there's not a decent market for them. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. I'll spill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. All right, now that we've got that out of the way, we can go home. Yeah, we're done now. We have said our names, and wait, nope, we have to disclose before we go home. First disclosure is that this program is called the Personal Wealth Coach. Got it. Very okay, nice. I got yeah. that one down. I wrote that down. Second one is that there are two bald men with beards having a conversation on the air. Uh, if that does not sit well with you, you may change the channel. Channel? Or, yeah. yeah. Unless it's a podcast and then you have to just change the podcast. Yes. Don't touch that dial. Second thing, or third thing after baldness and personal wealth coach is that the personal wealth coach is not just the name of a podcast and a radio program. It is also the name of an sec registered investment advisory firm. And that's not coincidental. The people that are talking to you are the principals at that firm. Just as a side note, just because the firm is registered with the sec doesn't mean that the sec has any kind of favorability preference or approval in any form, fashion or inference in any particular way that the government approves of us period. Well, dot, 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 because we could continue that disclosure. The government's not mm-hmm. good at approving of things. Um, and we've got lots to say on that subject later. Um, okay. So, and also registered as an SEC investment advisor, that means gives fiduciary investment advice to people, which we can't do on the air because we don't know you all. And unless there's only one of you listening and we know you in that case, I'm sorry, we didn't mean to tell you that we didn't know you. But it would still violate privacy for yeah. us to give you that advice where everybody else could hear. Because somebody else sneakily could turn on their radio right in the middle of the advice that we're broadcasting. So please consider what you're hearing today as educational material, um, kind of good information to let you know what's happening in the world and how to make decisions instead of what decision to make. There. I made that sufficiently non-legalese, I think, maybe. I'll take your word for it. Um, would you like to give a really legalese disclosure now? The information we present on this educational radio and internet broadcast has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And I deem that those warranties or guarantees that we don't give would be inaccurate if we had. 
I don't know. You're getting too complex for me. Yeah. My brain on Saturday morning can't handle that. Right. Okay. And the last, but not least, is that this is not a paid commercial program. We don't pay for this program, and they don't pay us to do it. So it's some kind of a weird volunteer thing that we've been doing for 25 years now on the air. So it's not paid commercial program. However, we do advertise on the station there. Uh, we actually get a discount on our advertising. We do. Yeah, I, I, we have our prices have not changed on what we pay for advertising per minute in like ten years. Don't tell them that. Right. So they actually are giving us a, that could amount to being paid if you think about it from no, that perspective. No, I, I think it's it's the laws of supply and demand. I think advertising in general has declined in AM radio. During that same and 10 so, year period. And so they're really happy to still have us. Oh, that could be. Uh, we are regular uh, as clockwork. The, the thing that we advertise for on the station, by the way, isn't us. It's for the radio program. So they may give yeah. us a discount on that as well. We, we do use the name of our firm, which happens to be the name of the radio yeah. program. So yeah. there's, there's, there's significant advantages. Senator, there. there is a quid pro quo. I mean, people hear us, and if they don't immediately change the channel based on our humor and baldness, um, people that tend to listen to us for a while might decide to use our services to give them advice on how to invest stuff if they've got high net worth. So it's not like we don't get anything for talking about this stuff, but that's it's not our mo major motivation. We are semi-motivated by that. I mean, it's nice to get new clients, but it's not something that we're actively looking for right now. We're probably getting a little overkill on the disclosures. Well, I mean, what we should just spend the whole hour on disclosures and see if we really have enough people that care about who we are as people to not change the channel. No, channel? No, no, no. Or podcast could be. No. Oh, don't touch that dial. Yeah, where there's a radio channel, it has to be dredged every once in a while to make sure that it's deep enough. Well, we got two questions from John, and I've got, I want to decompose consumer price inflation. So, what should we Wait, do? Wait, decompose is like rot. You're going to write, yeah. rot the consumer price index? I'm actually going to reduce it to its basic elements. Ooh, you lovely. Let's, let's talk about organic stuff here. Um, okay. Yeah, we got two good questions from Inquisitor John. Thank you, John. We appreciate your uh, questions. Do you want to take one of them? And it circled something in the Wall Street Journal sent us a picture, which he normally does. Um, and, and it says the U.S. already descending into recession economist. First off, somebody that says economist says, rather than saying that uh, a name, I would don't pay a lot of attention to it at that point. The U.S. is not descending into a recession. I don't care what economist says it is. We have some very clear indications that occur when we begin descending into a recession. Now, those indications sometimes are there when we don't have a recession, but we don't have recessions without those indications. For example, let me give you a parallel here that I think you'll understand. If you have a fever, you may or may not have COVID. But if you have a significant COVID infection, you're ill. I don't just mean you have the virus in you. You are ill from COVID. You will have a fever. So you have you can't this mix those like two an, up. Wait a minute. This is like an SAT question. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, all human men are human, but not all humans are men. That's certainly true. Okay. 
all men are humans, but not all humans are men. Think what you're trying to say. Yes, but I yeah, added anyway. extra words to make it more obvious. Yeah. Right. Or, or is we it not, obviouser? We're not, it is, it can be, recessions can be generated. It can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. What happens is people think, they read and they hear we're going into a recession and they say, I better save my money. By the way, that's how we get recessions. I better save my money and stop spending uh, I better stop buying things. I better stop charging things on my credit card because we got a recession coming. That will create a recession. More, However, more specifically, zooming in, small business owners and businesses saying, uh, I'm laying people off because we're going into a recession. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Our profits are up, but we're going to lay people off because it looks like a recession. That's self-fulfilling. Go ahead. But we're not seeing that. As a matter of fact, what we're seeing is the surveys, the small business uh, surveys that we see from the and the association of small businesses um are saying oh no we're having a recession things are bad they're going to get worse by the way they virtually always say that when a democrat is in the white house because most small business owners are republicans and so they are in the gloom and doom mode and they will also be unreasonably unreasonably typically unreasonably optimistic when a republican is in the white house so but what you watch is what they're doing not what they're saying and we watch small business hiring, and the complaint that, that the surveys are getting from small business owners is they can't find enough people to hire. If they thought we were going into a recession and they were pulling back at this point, the first thing they would do is stop hiring people. Right. Large businesses, in some cases like Tesla, have a hiring freeze on. And, then, and they say we're going to lay off some people, correct. but they haven't done it yet. But by the way, if, if you check with the Tesla details on why Elon Musk says that he's going to lay off 10% of his workforce, first off, it's not 10% of his workforce, it's 10% of the executives. He feels like he's got too many executives, too many white collar executives. The second reason is he said he can't get the parts that he needs to make his vehicles, even though demand is still way up there. That is not a trigger for that. That's why he may need to lay some people off because he can't get parts to make his vehicles. That's not recession generating typically. Uh, so what we see is that businesses and, and consumer, consumer sentiment indices are notoriously non-predictive. Business opinions about the future of the economy are no small business at least are notoriously non-predictive. Large businesses, publicly traded corporations have a much better handle on whether we're going to have a recession or not um, because they generally go off of data rather than off gut feeling. So we're not, we're not in the position yet. We could get there, but we're not in the position yet where small businesses, our businesses in general are creating a self-fulfilling prophecy of creating a recession. I, and and I have a, a fantastic book by Roger Farmer. Um, called The Macroeconomics of Self-Fulfilling Prophecies. It's a thing, and you can read about it and understand which parts of self-fulfilling prophecies cause them to occur and which parts don't. So when, when there's a sentiment, like consumer sentiment right now is really low, well, that's not a predictor of anything if they're still spending. A real mm -hmm. predictor is how consumer spending is doing. So yeah. consumer sentiment lines up with consumer spending. If they're both going down, that's an indicator. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But if spending's going up, right as everybody's saying, this is horrible, 
It means that they think somebody else might lose their job, but they think their job is fine. My job is fine. I think somebody else might lose theirs. I'm going to keep spending. That's the, that's good for the for the economy. The surveys are consistently at extreme low points, as low as they were in 2020 about the future of the economy. Right. And and they really However, haven't they, ever recovered from the pandemic. The sentiment on the future of the economy never got up again to where it was in 2019. However, the credit card companies are saying consumers are increasing their use of credit cards and their accumulation of credit card debt. So those two are completely reversed from each other. It's it's the old story, watch what they do, not what they say. Yeah. And, and I think that's completely true. Uh, we have another question from Inquisitor John, our most, most faithful questioner. Um, the subject is crypto recommended for the efficient frontier. Uh, his question is, what are uncorrelated assets and how do they impact the f- efficient frontier? And there's a picture of the Wall Street Journal and on it, it says one of the core investing concept of moving out of the out on the efficient frontier, making a portfolio less volatile for the same amount of return by adding uncorrelated assets. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot to take in. <clears throat> we deal with this stuff every day. But if I just started a conversation with somebody with that mouthful of jargon, uh, the, the eye glaze starts, um, and if I'm at a, uh, a mixer with a bunch of adults, if I started a conversation like that, I would watch the whole group kind of look around for somebody else to talk to. But I think everybody that's listening to this know what they got into. What is the efficient frontier? What is an uncorrelated asset class? Oh my goodness. Um, an asset class has a kind of a, a definition and we've we're already we always talk about this who sets the definitions in finance well kind of sort of consensus you can go f- to three different finance dictionaries and get three completely different definitions for a bull market and that's one we would think everybody would have a common understanding of three different definitions for a bull market for real um so what is the efficient frontier? This is based in the concept that we now call um, modern portfolio theory, if people have talked about that, or asset allocating, um, asset, asset allocation in your portfolio. It comes from a paper that was written in 1952 called Portfolio Selection. It had some other stuff. Uh, Dr. Sharp and Dr. Markowitz contributed a bunch of stuff on the metrics on how to measure risk versus return. And if you mix a bunch of assets together, um, they can sort of act as, as like shock absorbers against each other if they don't all go up at the same time and all go down at the same time. Um, really, really simple and maybe oversimplified concept is say you have some stocks and some bonds and interest rates go up but at the same time, profitability goes up for the companies. You might see the stocks go up and the bonds go down and vice versa. Interest rates dropping, but the corporation's um, profits are just barely petering out or they're flat from last year. You might see the stock market go down and the bond market go up. Now, assuming that the company stays around for the next 20 years and they pay their debts on time, the reality is that both of those investments from the beginning made a profit, the stock and the bond. The bond is a loan to the company and the stock is an owning of the company. So those are not 
totally correlated asset classes. They go up sort of sometimes at different times, but they're what we call highly correlated. They're the same company. So if that company says we're going to go bankrupt, the bond's going to go down and the stock's going to go down. So if you want to have to, to measure this stuff, you first you have to get what's called diversified. You have to group all these big companies that are sort of the same together, and that's called an asset class. Now, what's an asset class? And this is, again, definitions are different, but it comes from a paper written in 1952 by Markowitz. And Markowitz has a definition for asset classes. So I think that's a pretty good reference point. His definition is a group of value-generating entities that have an objective way of determining their value or what they are. So if a company has, if you think of a book value, a book value is just like the net worth. If you take all your debts and subtract them from all your assets, that's your net worth. And for a company, that would be a book value. The book value is a net worth. Okay, if a company is valued by the market, the auction market, the stock market, has it valued below its book value, that's called a value company because its, its assets are worth more than the market's giving. If the market's valuing it right at its book value, that's still called a value company because it's being valued on what it owns. A growth company could be valued way above its net worth because we think it's going to have really good profitability and growth in that profit, profitability into the future. Hey, look at all the money they're making yeah, it's a lemonade stand, and if, if they went bankrupt and had to sell the table and the cups, they're not going to get very much money left. Their net worth isn't that great, but they're making $800 a day. So they're valued on their earnings. That's a growth company. So these two don't act the same way. General Mills, a Cheerios company, does not act the same way that Tesla does. Tesla's being valued on its what people think it's going to earn into the future. And General Mills is, yeah, it's profitable, but it's being valued based on what its net worth is and what its profit profitability is at a very low level. They People don't think that they're going to eat eight boxes of Cheerios a day into the future. It's probably going to eat your one bowl and that's it. It's not a growth company. It's a value company. They're not correlated. All right. Since my career and way, way back before my career part started, people have been saying, hey, you need to get this other asset class in your portfolio. It's totally not correlated. So that should lower your risk. If, if you have stocks and bonds and they're going up long term, but they go up and down at different times from each other, your average is less bumpy because they're shock absorbing. Well, the endowment manager at Yale University during the Great Recession was this guy who said, hey, I've got an alt, alt asset class, and you'll hear that term a lot. And I'm going to put it in the portfolio because it doesn't, it doesn't go up when the market does. It doesn't go down when the market does, but long term, it's way up. And his alternate asset class was a bunch of lumberland millions upon millions of acres of lumberland, but it wasn't being harvested annually, monthly, quarterly. It was set to be harvested in 40 years. That doesn't met, meet the definition, according to Markowitz, of an asset class. It's not creating a value right now. It may create a value in 40 years, but it's not producing value today. 
So we would call that an unproductive land. It's like a collectible. What does gold do? That's not an asset class, but companies that mine gold that are trying to be profitable even when gold prices are down, we would group those companies together as an asset class. When people say we want to use cryptocurrency as an alternate asset class to lower the risk in your portfolio, they don't know what an asset class is. Bitcoin's crypto, that's a collectible. What does Bitcoin create? It's like a gold coin. It doesn't mean you can't make a profit in it, but it's not creating a value of its own. It's not like a company, it's not like the lemonade stand where they're making lemonade, turning lemons, which aren't that expensive, and water that's not that expensive, and sugar that's not that expensive, and little kid smiles, which aren't that expensive, into great profits. That's value creation. That, that can be quantified and say this group is doing something that's trying to be profitable even in downtimes. So when people say we should throw in cryptocurrency as an alternate asset class to bring you up to the efficient frontier to lower your risk, it's just that's like, wrong. it's wrong. It's just like let me, putting let me, raw land in there or gold or, or a cow that you don't intend to sell. Go ahead. It's important to recognize something too. In order for an asset class to lower risk, it has to non, be non-correlative. Well, guess what? If you look at high tech speculative stocks and you look at the price of Bitcoin, they're very correlated. <laughs> they go up at the perfect. same time. They go down at they the same time. They go up and time. down precisely the same way. Just Bitcoin goes up and down more. Actually, Bitcoin increases the volatility, variance, and market risk of the typical portfolio. The only people who say they would love you to get Bitcoin in your portfolio are people that uh, are selling Bitcoin. <laughs> people, yeah, basically somebody who wants to sell Bitcoin. That's it in a nutshell. Are true believers. Right. Who believe that, who, who irrationally believe that Bitcoin is valuable, which it isn't. I mean, and it, it is valuable. I'm, I'm going to contest that. It's valuable as long as people are willing to pay for it. It's like a trading card or a gold coin. If there's a market out there for it and people, the true believers want to keep buying it, there will always be a value there if there's people still willing to buy it, but in a but collectible way. Well, let me say why I don't think it's valuable. If we take a given Bitcoin and there have been quite, not, not, not Bitcoin, but a given Crypto. cryptocurrency. And there have been probably about 20 that I know of now. About half of those have declined to zero and disappeared. Wait, are you saying you only know of 20 cryptocurrencies? That I know of off the top okay. of my head. All right. All right. There, there's there, probably more. There are thousands. Well, then That's probably... Your, it makes your point more clearly to know that there are thousands of them. <laughs> Something that is out there that goes that has no value is not valuable. Pretty, well, there's lots more we have to say about a lot of things. Um, building a good portfolio is really important and building a portfolio of asset classes that are not particularly well correlated historically is important, but that is far more of an art than a science. There's a science basis to it. In other words, first, you have to use asset classes. You can't just use random stuff like alternatives. I guess one of the most important things I wanted to say about that Alternatives are dangerous. They're very dangerous. So if somebody says, I want to put alts in your portfolio because it, it reduces your, the variance or reduces the risk of your portfolio, wrong. That is, I'm just going to say it. It's universally wrong. Why? Alternative investments, by definition, do not have a liquid market. It means you don't know what they're worth until you go to sell them. That's kind of why they're called alternatives because there's not a decent market for them. 
And we've talked about this before, but it's important to remember that Harvard ran into a budgetary crisis despite the fact they had a world record-breaking portfolio that didn't decline, and Yale ran into a crisis at about the same time for the same reason. And the reason that they ran into this is their income hit a shortfall and they had outflows that they needed to cover, so they went to their endowment to get some money. And they found out that the things they wanted to sell, which had been carried at a constant price that were alternative investments, really weren't worth as much as the constant price would indicate. And that is certainly true with non-traded real estate investment trusts. It's true with just anything that doesn't have a liquid market. You don't know what it's worth. In other words, if there's if bonds, most bonds, not all bonds, most bonds have a liquid market. Some don't. Listed stocks that are widely traded have a liquid market. Uh, how much is a given business or a piece of real estate or a piece of woodland or a whatever worth? You don't know until you put it on the market and attempt to sell it and see what bid you get. And the market could have changed for that particular asset dramatically in a, in a relatively short period of time, and you wouldn't have known about it. So when you go to sell it, and this is, by the way, one of the issues with alternative investments, they tend to be faddish, means that when people are buying them, a lot of people buy them and they get high appraisal values. And when they go to sell them, they're not the only people trying to sell them at that particular moment. And so they get low appraisal values. Uh, As interest rates go up, for instance, a lot of real estate is going to go down in value. But you don't know that if if it's not widely traded. Okay, that's my stuff on asset classes. We have a question from Alan um, about inflation on, uh, did we experience the same kind of inflation uh, when Saddam Hussein disrupted the world oil supply? Yes, we, we saw the price of oil jump drastically after the invasion of Kuwait. It didn't jump as much and it didn't stay up very long. And the reason was we were using a lot less oil as a percentage of the oil available on the world market. In other words, the Saudis had a reserve that they opened the spigots on to offset the fact that the Kuwaiti oil went off the market. Iraq did not produce a lot of oil. So it's just the Kuwaiti oil we had that went off the market. And Saudi Arabia opened the tap. So did everybody else, by the way. Yeah. So we really didn't get a spike of inflation. The other thing is Kuwait's contribution to the world oil supply as a percentage of the world oil supply was quite small when compared with Russians. The Russian in, in, in the early 2020s here, why? Russian was a small oil producer at the time, but at the, what happened was Western oil companies went into Russia and helped them develop oil fields using technology from the West and build pipelines and cause Russia to be a major oil producer. The oil was always in the ground in Russia. They just couldn't, they just were so inefficient. They couldn't get it out. And they did it as an, as an open outreach. So let's kind of go back in time a minute. We're talking about 1991. Uh, The Soviets produced a lot of oil and gas. They did. They just didn't export a whole bunch of it compared to what they do today, what the Russians do today. Um, and then their technology got beat up. The fall of the Soviet Union is associated with that first Gulf War and that there were all the, the very best Soviet technology was on the ground in Iraq. The battle-hardened Iraqis had been trained by the very best Soviet trainers 
on the equipment that they were using. And the United States and the Coalition of Nations just came in and took them apart. Just there was no, it wasn't a war. It was a very one-sided event. And then, uh, so so the the cutoff in oil led to the fall of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union then looks around and says, hey, we can't even defend ourselves using our best stuff based on what's just happened. That led to a, you know, Yeltsin uh, decided that, whoa, this, is, this isn't working. There were uprising in, in Moscow. Uh, so the Soviet Union fell. And then we have this period where the Russians were pretty much a basket case for a while. Um, and the United States and a lot of for-profit companies in the United States said, hey, we're going to set up a relationship with the folks over in Russia and get them started up so that we have something to offset the threat from the Middle East. The Iranians used oil and gas as a weapon and cut us off. So we've put a lot of money into investment in, uh, in Russia. And this is, you're seeing this in some of the uh, big write-offs that are happening, like Shell just gave up, what was it, $12 billion worth of ownership in Gazprom? Well, it's because you just, they helped build the Russian oil industry. You're giving the United States companies a lot more credit. Shell, Shell is, is not based in Shell the United Shell is States. the UK and Dutch. It used to be Royal no, Dutch Shell. Dutch. So it's, it's, it's based in the Netherlands. Uh, they, just Shell's based their, at, they just moved okay. their headquarters. At, at the time, they were in the Netherlands. Right. And uh, BP is headquarters is still in the United Kingdom. So yeah. it, it was the Western countries, the European Union and the United States, yeah. developed the oil fields in Russia without... If, had we not done that, by the way, they wouldn't be in a position today to be invading other countries. Correct. It's it's a, certainly a great deal of irony in that. Uh, but, you know, that's a free enterprise system. We were able to come in and make oligarchs and make billionaires out of Russians and One cause of, them to produce a lot of oil and be a major oil supplier in the world. At the same time that that was going on, Nigeria was all, had a lot of money invested in it by the same companies, American, Dutch, UK, all of them together, massive amount of influx of money into Nigeria and the former Soviet bloc on, um, on oil development to help be an offset against the volatile Middle East, which is always going to war, or, I mean, Iraq and Iran had been at war with each other so much that they were ramping up to supply more oil, and absolutely the price of oil went up after the invasion, but we didn't see the kind of inflation that we're seeing now, and part of that is that it's not just oil and gas. Oh, when we're talking about Russia invasion of Ukraine, we're talking about a lot of food as well. So all of the volatile stuff is going up right now. By volatile, I mean food and energy are the things that are the most subject to volatility and inflation. The prices just go up really, really fast, and they go down really, really fast because it's seasonal when it comes to food. And oil and gas, if there's a cut in a pipeline somewhere, then our supply drops drastically. Anyway, that, those are, I think we hit that Iraq invasion of Kuwait was bad, but nowhere near as bad for the world stage as Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve 
That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.